0: Why yes, there are other sci-fi podcasts on the web, but they talk about Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who, and pretend they're really into sci-fi. They know nothing. This is Unpopular Sci-Fi, an atomic future podcast. Your host is an absolute sci fi nerd. He knows and talks about anything and everything sci fi. Sci fi movies, shows, video games. And not only that, but he digs deep. Welcome in to Unpopular Sci Fi, an Atomic Future podcast. And now your host, R.J. Cervantes.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Unpopular Sci-Fi. This episode will be unique. I will be talking about two movies. This Island Earth and Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Movie. What do they have in common? I will get into that when I talk about the latter. I'm gonna talk about the former first, This Island Earth. This Island Earth is a 1955 movie directed by Joseph M. Newman. The flick stars Jeff Morrow as Exeter. Faith Demare as Ruth Adams, Rex Reason as Cal Meacham, Lance Fuller as Brock, Russell Johnson as Steve Carlson, Douglas Spencer as The Monitor, Robert Nichols as Joe Wilson, and Orangey as Neutron. What kind of name is Orangey you may ask? Orangey is a tabby cat and yes I'm going to credit the animal actor. Fun fact, Orangey also appeared in The Incredible Shrinking Man and Breakfast at Tiffany's. His trainer, Frank N., was credited in the latter. Herman Stern scored the movie. I have to bring this up because he wasn't credited because of some weird rule at the time. I didn't know about this until I listened to the commentaries on my Blu-ray copy.
2: Stein wrote 21 cues for this Island Earth, over 23 minutes of music, but he didn't receive a screen credit because Universal's general policy was to omit a composing credit when two or more people wrote music for the same picture, although there were certainly exceptions to this rule. Hans Salter and Henry Mancini wrote the last six cues in the movie, about eight minutes of music, so Stein was denied his much-deserved screen credit. There was an unwritten universal policy that stated that even with multiple composers, when a composer wrote at least 80% of the score, he'd get a screen credit next to the music supervision credit for music department head Joseph Gershenson. But there were exceptions to this rule as well, as some composers received screen credit when writing much less than 80%. Because Stein only scored about 75% of the film's music, he didn't receive a much-deserved screen credit, even though some of Salter's writing was based on Stein's themes and ideas. Instead, Gershenson, who conducted the score, was the only one who received a music-related credit in the picture. In Universal's defense, they were cranking out movies at a rapid pace, and imminent scoring deadlines could be reached by having more than one composer simultaneously writing music for the same picture. But This Island Earth was in production for a long time, and although composing was one of the last things done to a film, Stein could write about three minutes of music a day, so he could have scored the end of the picture in fewer than three days. Pre-release production notes actually gave Stein the sole composing credit on the movie, and four decades later he remembered thinking the assignment was his alone, and he was not so pleasantly surprised to learn that his name was nowhere on the picture. But This Island Earth was one of the studio's most prestigious productions at the time, and it's possible that Stein got moved on to another project prematurely, so there would be only one music credit on the movie because basically, if Gershenson had wanted the 39-year-old Stein to receive a composing credit, he could have seen to that. And other than producer William Allen and director Joseph Newman, the film's only other full-screen credit went to Gershenson. It's likely that if Stein's name had been attached to the film, we'd be talking about the picture as having one of the classic 1950s science fiction scores, But more important, Stein never got the recognition he deserved for most of the masterful, uncredited work he did for Universal. So when the studio laid off its composing staff in 1958, he had trouble finding other film work in Hollywood.
1: That was David Setcher, who was friends with Joseph M. Newman, the director of the flick. The film is an adaptation of the 1952 science fiction novel written by American author Raymond F. Jones. So what is this boomer sci-fi movie about? Carl Misham is an atomic scientist. One day, Cal received a conceder, they call it a bead throughout the movie, and a catalog from an unknown source. Cal and his assistant, Joe, decided to order some parts from the catalog. After receiving the parts and putting them together, the machine projects an individual named Exeter. Exeter tells them that the machine they built is called an Inesitor, and it was used as a test. The test was to see if Cal can put together a machine he has never heard of. Since he passed, Exeter offered Cal a chance to work on a project with other like-minded scientists. Cal accepts, however, he doesn't know that Exeter isn't telling him the truth. If you're thinking, this doesn't sound too exciting, it sounds dull, is the book any better? I understand your feelings, and to answer your question, no, and in my opinion, the movie is way better. When I first read the book for this episode, I felt like the book dragged on. I also felt like the book was disjointed. It was like reading three stories within one book. It turns out I was correct. Apparently, the book was a serialized trilogy of three novelettes under different names. The first part is called The Alien Machine, the second part is called The Shroud of Secrecy, while the third part is called The Greater Conflict. It was later combined into one in 1952 under the name this island earth
3: so raymond jones uh has written a number of stories in the 40s and he wrote a series of short stories for a magazine called thrilling wonder stories it was a pulp publication and the first story was so popular that the editors of thrilling wonder stories uh, suggested that he do a sequel to that story which he did he wrote a part two And because that story left things up in the air, he had to do a part three. Then he condensed those three stories into the novel, This Island Earth. Uh, That was not the original title of the stories, but that's what he called the novel.
1: The first 30 minutes of the movie is faithful to the book, with the exception of the opening where Cal's jet malfunctioned and was saved by a mysterious green force. This is an audio podcast show. I can't show you the scene. But the effects they used to achieve this green light was interesting. In this day and age, they will use CGI. I'm going to let Robert Sotak explain it because he is a visual effects artist.
3: Tricky scene to do nowadays would not be so difficult to make this plane glow. They had to uh, literally hand trace that plane frame by frame to create a matte which allowed them to uh, introduce that green glow. So it was uh, every frame of the sequence was hand-drawn and traced. The person who actually headed that up, who headed up that department for what's known as rotoscoping, was a lady by the name of Millie Weinbrenner. And she had a whole department of um, primarily uh, women who um, did this meticulous job of tracing frames Like this film, but also films like The Incredible, Shrinking Man, The Land Unknown, etc.
1: There are some minor differences, such as Ruth and Cal meeting before in Vermont while in the book they never met, if I remember correctly. Cal and Ruth also ended up getting married in the book while their movie counterparts don't. The flick features the planet Metaluna and their enemy fraction Zagon, both of which doesn't exist in the book. This isn't a minor difference, but a major one. For those who have seen the movie, you will be familiar with the Metalunan mutant. The brain exposed insectoid. The monster is everywhere, on posters, merch, and even in the trailer. What if I tell you that the mutant doesn't appear in the novel at all? What if I also tell you that the mutant was a last minute addition to the movie? This doesn't surprise me because the mutant showed up at the climax. I don't know how to feel about it because on one hand, the monster feels unnecessary, but on the other... I can understand the business perspective. This was the 1950s and monster flicks were the rage at the time. It helped with the promotion of the film. The last major difference is that the book deals with the theme of workers rights. The book even mentions communism. The flick ditches this. The book is forgettable. I haven't read a lot of sci-fi books from the 50s but This Island Earth is the weakest I read so far. I can think of two books that are better on the top of my head. The Shrinking Man and Martians Go Home, which is my favorite sci-fi book and it has a movie adaptation, which I will talk about in the future. The movie's reception is a lot better. On the back of my Blu-ray, there's a quote by TV Guide.
4: A landmark science fiction film. An intelligent interplanetary epic filled with beautifully crafted designs and marvelous special effects.
1: Howard Thompson from the New York Times stated,
4: The technical effects of this island Earth Universal's first science fiction excursion in color are so superlatively bizarre and beautiful that some serious shortcomings can be excused if not overlooked.
1: Bill Warren, film historian and critic, has said before he passed,
4: The best and most significant science fiction movie of 1955. It remains a decent, competent example of any era's science fiction output.
1: Denny Prairie, film critic and author of cult movies, has said,
4: Colorful, imaginative, gadget laden sci fi.
1: But what do I think of the movie? While there are better films from the 1950s, I still enjoy this flick. It's interesting that this movie did a thing first before the thing became normalized, such as being one of the first movies to have moving backgrounds, interstellar travel, and a transporter deck.
3: Interesting credits, the background for the credits. This is one of the first movies that used moving star fields. Generally, in movies before this, backgrounds were stationary, just the star field, but here they sort of made a three-dimensional star field. This is used throughout the film. Now, of course, today this is pretty common. As I mentioned, uh, this was one of the earliest films to deal with travel outside of our solar system. Uh, there had been films made about trips to the moon and to Mars. But this actually went beyond beyond that into interstellar space. Now, a lot of people give credit to the movie Forbidden Planet for coming up with the, an idea that ins- later inspired the transporter deck in Star Trek. As in Forbidden Planet, they have a scene where the crew goes through this pressurization process. But the actual fact is Forbidden Planet was inspired by this movie, which has that process. It was copied in Forbidden Planet, and then Star Trek picked up from Forbidden Planet. So really the source of that transporter idea or the general kind of layout and feel of it came from This Eye on Earth.
1: According to Robert, one of the drafts of the flick involved an interplanetary battle. I kind of wish they kept that. It would have predated Star Wars.
3: So Newman and Orsati and Callahan took the script to several different studios. The big interest was at Republic Studios. They almost made a deal to make the film there. Ultimately, what happened, though, is um, Joe Newman had um, an acquaintance, a fairly high-up acquaintance at Universal that he brought the script to, and Universal jumped on it and said, let's make this they're very excited about it's the... Well, the, that first script was very imaginative. I mean, it really dealt with the first interplanetary war. In a sense, what was in that script were things that would show up much later in films like Star Wars. So um, the scope of the, of the book and the, and the script was um, very wide-ranging, because it's one of the first films that ever explored interplanetary space.
1: Cal also said my favorite line in the movie.
4: I beg of you, go inside. Cooperate voluntarily. If you do, I give you my word that you will not be harmed or your mind's changed in any way. You defy the monitor.
0: I already have.
4: Do you believe in Cal?
0: In this place, I wouldn't believe my grandmother. Come on. One more
1: thing. I'm sorry, I just had to do a Jackie Chan's uncle interpretation. If you guys don't know who that is. You just watch Jackie Chan Adventures, <laughs> for all you old people who hasn't seen that cartoon. According to Robert, Jack didn't do any reshoots for the film, yet Jack is still credited as a director.
3: Quite a number of years ago, another director at Universal named Jack Arnold uh, claimed uh, that um, he did a lot of reshoots on this movie. That uh, all, these, all the sequences on Metaluna were reshot with brought back the actors and rebuilt the sets etc that that claim is not true i to this day don't know why he would say something so extravagantly untrue uh he may have done some work in post production with the timing the color timing of the movie i think they showed him the film and asked for some suggestions on the editing when the director joe newman was not available because joe newman was on another film but i asked jack arnold himself uh, about this claim and uh, when he had heard that I had spoken to some 60 to 80 people who worked on the film he said oh I, I had I had very little to do with it he completely backed off that claim so uh, unfortunately it's been repeated in many many places that he directed the movie and uh, you know, com- completely redid the film in many ways and that's just not true it is absolutely not true
1: that was this Island Earth. Now I'm going to talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Now you might be wondering, what does Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, have to do with this island Earth? What is even Mystery Science Theater 3000? Mystery Science Theater 3000 is a television comedy show created by Joe Hugson. The show is about a human host and his robot friends, Crow T. Robot, Tom Servo, and Gypsy who live on a ship called the Satellite of Love. Gypsy pilots the ship while the human host, Crow, and Servo are being tortured by the show's antagonists, loosely by mad scientists. How are they being tortured? They watch bad movies against their rules. to keep their sanity. They riff on the movie. Yes, that's the premise of the show. Here's a few minutes of the movie.
3: Now,
2: Crow, I told you, no more escape attempts. Well, believe me, Mike. I calculated the odds of this succeeding versus the odds I was doing something incredibly stupid, and I went ahead anyway. It's the nicest weather Earth has ever had.
0: Notice how big Japan is? (laughs) Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Babylon 5. Doesn't the fact that it's universal make it international?
4: I don't blame you doctors for being excited about working for Exeter. It's a rare privilege. He's a rare man. Our little Newton gave us away. <laughs> he felt the impulses. Not cat, I could. Put Newton under the thought transformer? Mm-hmm. Why not, Brack? And perhaps you'd like me to step in with him. Ah, yeah, smooch my big white alien forehead. Turn it off, Brack. Our friends won't be giving us any more information tonight. Put you in the bitch
3: transformer? Here's a sketch of the inner I also have rough notes on its working controls. Hmm. It's
0: guesswork mostly, but better than nothing. Not much. And these are portraits of Exeter and Brack.
4: Do you notice the peculiar indentations in both their foreheads?
0: No! (laughs) Coincidental, no doubt.
4: And this is the one we're really proud of, Cal.
0: We discovered this about
3: a week ago, two miles south of here. The side of this hill has been hollowed out. And here's
0: an acre of canvas covering the excavation. Mm -hmm. You tell me what's in there. A pudding?
4: Dee wanted to go back and find out what was inside, but I guess I got cold feet. (laughs) Just like Vermont. Still a sissy. God, I
2: hate you.
1: To anyone who hasn't seen the show, you might be wondering how the type of bad movies do they riff? How can they turn that into a movie? I'll tell you, but there's other stuff I have to bring up because this show has a cult following. It lasted for 13 seasons. With 230 episodes, the original one lasted from November 1988 to September 1999. The first revival of the show was on Netflix, under the title Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Gauntlet. The second revival is on a website called GizmoPlex. The show is highly praised. It won awards such as the Peabody and an Emmy. Time Magazine has listed the show in their 100 best TV shows of all time in 2007. This is a show where characters just riff on movies. The type of flicks they riff on are B-movies. Not good or decent B-movies but bad B-movies. Think Alien from LA or The Mole They don't riff on the whole movie. They have to edit the movie down for time. The characters in the show do take breaks from watching the film. They you goof off until it's time to go back watching As I said, the show lasted for 13 seasons, and within that time frame, the humans have been replaced. Joel Robson, played by the creator, was originally the host for five Other seasons. Other human characters who have appeared on the show are Dr. Earnhardt, Dr. Forrester, Pearl Frank. Forrester, and Mike Nelson. Mike Nelson took over as the host from season 6 to 10. We even follow him in Fun the Fun fact. According to the making of the featurette on my Blu-ray copy of the movie, the show was made in the garage. If you're still trying to figure out how can they turn that into a feature length film, let me tell you, what we got was different from the the first draft. The ideas in the first draft involved the mad scientist going to a mad scientist convention in Las Vegas, where a time machine goes haywire, musical numbers, and a great escape scene involving Servo. Paramount turned the pitch down because it was too expensive. They wanted something like the show. It wasn't the end of the world. A lawyer from Universal who was a fan of the show hooked them up. The movie they choose to riff on is This Island Earth. And the reason why they choose the movie is because to them, This Island Earth has a silly premise. Which I can see where they're coming from. With this information I just told you, you might be thinking, so is the movie just an extended episode of the show? Well, yes and no. The no part, episodes of the show are usually an hour and 30 minutes. This varies, but the movie is an hour and 17 minutes. The yes part, the movie does play out like an episode of the show. It opens with Dr. Clayton Forrester and his quest for world domination by forcing Mike to watch bad movies. If Mike breaks, then Forrester would make the human race watch bad movies. Mike, Crow, and Servo do take breaks from the movie. The first involved Mike removing a satellite on the ship. The second one involves the trio using an interrocitor as a plan to return to Earth. And the third and final break involves Dr. Forrester being teleported to an alien's home The alien shower. is from this island Earth. Lastly, the movie, Mystery Science Theater, had to edit some of this One example Earth. is the scene in this island Earth where the invasitor destroys the catalog that was given to Cal. While the second example cut away from a random scientist's Now you might be dead. thinking... Why did they turn this into a movie? Whose idea was this? Well, the makers of the show noticed the energy of the audience when they do they a notice live They noticed when show. someone doesn't get the joke, they will laugh anyway because of the audience's energy. So they decided to do that this movie. This makes sense because when you're at a stand-up show, you will laugh at a joke you didn't get because other people laugh at it. This happens to me a lot when I go to stand-up The reason shows, why I chose to talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, is because there are people out there who refuse to watch an old movie. Like, I used to work with somebody who said, well, I don't watch black and white movies. And I still see these types of people who say that. And I'm just like, you're missing out. So I wanted to tell the listener that doesn't. know. I want to call myself a fan of the show. In fact, I only seen a few episodes... However, I am watching the Netflix revival, but I did enjoy the One of my favorite movie. jokes in the movie is a joke about the Denver airport. If you're from Colorado like I am, the you flick even mocks it. Cal and Ruth not realizing that Exeter is an alien. Which is a common criticism for this Servo makes Earth. a rice crack about knowing a few Lunas. I wanted to make a joke about Servo knowing Luna star, but I could have come up with a punchline. Then I remember, they wouldn't hear me if I was talking to my TV, and I was watching the movie by myself. Yeah, I like porn. So what? The reception of this movie is positive, with the Washington Post on the back of my blue-white copy saying,
4: The movie probably provides more LPM, laughs per minute, than most Hollywood comedies. It is painfully funny in places, painfully because you nearly herniate yourself stifling laughs to keep from missing the next bon mot.
1: While they're not great films, I still enjoy them. If you're into boomer sci-fi like I am, I say give This Island Earth if not and shot. you just want to laugh at an old movie, watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. If neither are up your alley, then skip both of them. I give This Island Earth a 3 out of 5 while I give Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, a 4 out Rope. of 5. I did it. I release an episode every other week to play catch up to a non-existent audience next month i will be going back to a monthly release until then ciao
0: this island earth can be yours if the price is right (laughs) you've been listening to unpopular sci-fi an atomic future podcast rj's passion is anything sci-fi and anything except mainstream sci-fi we nerd out and dig into the petty stuff the fun stuff. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on YouTube at Atomic Future. And on Twitter at Atomic underscore Future. See you next time on Unpopular Sci-Fi.